I'm so excited you can be here to listen to this episode with Gina Maffa today. Gina's a trauma therapist in New York City, and she sat down to talk about her new book that she's writing and what it's been like to support people through COVID. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. If you're loving the podcast, will you go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review with five stars and also a little written comment? It really helps other people get to know the show and helps the algorithm put it in front of folks when they're searching for it. Thanks so much. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am so excited to have Gina Maffa here with me today. Gina, thank you so much for being here. Megan, I have to be honest, it is pure magic that we are here together. From hello, from the moment I've heard you on podcasts, all of that, from the moment we connected, and that very same day you liked something of mine on Instagram, and I was like, stop it. It's magic. Cool things about being in the small world of grief and loss is that it's almost like living in a village. Like you cross paths on the internet with the people that you know, and you and I had been crossing paths on each other. And I think reached out to each other on the same day, which was wild and kismet and the way it was meant to be. So can you tell my listeners, like, who are you in the world of grief and loss? What brings you into the space? Yes, yes. Well, I am a clinical social worker in New York City. I have a private practice for a very long time. But what brought me into grief in the grief space really was almost by accident. I was a trauma therapist and specializing in trauma at the time. This is, or I I did trauma work and training in 2005. Hmm. But from kind of the late, you know, 2008 to 15, et cetera, I was working with Holocaust survivors at a place called the 92nd Street Y in New York City. And, you know, a lot of that work was sort of going back and looking at all that was lost. You know, you can't talk about trauma without talking about loss, the before and the after. And, you know, and interestingly, and I wasn't running grief specific groups or doing grief specific work as much as sort of trauma stuff, but it was a summer. And I was getting a lot of calls and people were looking for grief groups and grief support. And everyone I called to sort of help bridge a gap said they were on vacation. And I was like, okay, looks like we're doing it here. And went, you know, as quickly as possible, put it on, you know, the catalog and started the groups there. And it's, so it's sort of kind of spun from there. And ever since a lot like you really doing trauma and grief work in tandem, and feel like it's really something that, ugh, though clinically not related all the time, really is important for people to understand because I don't think a grief has to be traumatic all the time to feel traumatizing. Yeah. And yeah. that, you know, so that's sort of where I land these days in the grief space. Mm. Well, I mean, even just hearing that is fascinating, right? I mean, I think it's interesting to like look back at how decisions are made or, or you're meeting needs. And then you're like, Oh, look, I was putting the bricks together to what is going to be my career. It sounds amazing to have worked with Holocaust survivors, particularly because there are fewer and fewer of those people. That's a limited group. What was when you were working with that group, what was your big learning from that? My impression is that those folks would have had a lot of sitting in those experiences, sort of neural pathway track work by the time they found you. So what was, what were some of that experience for you? Kind of the survival mechanisms 
a lot of that, you know, I would also say that, you know, we're in it, it was a very different generation of people who just sort of got on with it. And, you know, reopening it for me was like, oh, we don't actually have to witness a trauma in order to start healing from it in some capacities, depending on what it is, this could be more harmful to them. So sharing certain parts of their stories, when I started to see the activation, it was like, oh, okay, is this actually going to be more harmful to them at times? Or is this going to be, do we have to tell our story over and over in in order to get healing? And I think, you know, more and more, as, as you know, as trauma research sort of continued to evolve, we realized a lot of it was all in the body and necessarily, you know, telling a story doesn't necessarily give you the healing that I think people think it is. That's right. And so when I, when I am talking to folks about the importance, I have a chapter in a book that I'm writing about, like, listen, a lot of the time I'm going to tell you to go see a grief coach. You can see a pastor, you can talk to a friend. When we get to the trauma space, you got to talk to somebody who's trauma informed. You have to. And I'm not saying that because I'm like, oh, well, you know, they paid a lot for their education. I'm saying that because the exact thing that you're describing, which is being able to work with someone who doesn't destabilize the trauma, right? That there are a lot of ways that people have to pack in and manage what makes their system activated. And that point of, listen, terrible things happen all the time to people all the time. When you're working in the trauma space, what you're working with is people who have systems that are dysregulated. And so sometimes, you know, I do think in grief and loss for people who are in early fresh grief, which often looks like a traumatized person and they are a traumatized person, but that maybe isn't the kind of clinical trauma that will make its way into our office because the trauma can resolve on its mm-hmm. own, right? George Bonanno did a lot of studies about that, but, but it's being able to sort of, you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter whether it's fresh grief or whether it's trauma that you've been living with for a really long time. The symptoms are very similar and we're looking for symptom stability so that you can get where you need to go in life. And part of what happens with grief and loss is this idea of I have to go back out into a world that feels totally different to me than it did on Thursday. And so what do I need to do to sort of like regulate and settle my system in order for that to be possible? Sometimes writing a narrative, like writing workshops and writing is amazing. Mm -hmm. A Holocaust survivor asking them every detail of what happened to them is not a good idea. Not at all. No, at all. <laughs> at all. That's absolutely going to destabilize trauma. And, you know, I'll say I learned it the hard way. I had a client come in and ask, you know, tell me some really difficult stuff. And I was like, tell me more details about that. I was a little baby therapist. And then they called me that night and they were like, I'm out of my, I can't even, you know, and I was like, okay, I, I need to learn how to take care of this. And what I will say is even as a trauma informed therapist, it's, it's tricky. It's hard work. It's hard work to stabilize trauma. So what techniques do you use? What are you in your office and you're working with grief and loss and you're working with trauma? How are you showing up? What is your, what are your modalities? People love to hear about this stuff. I know it's so funny to me because I'm, I'm sort of a champion of whatever works, right? Everybody Ah. comes in with something different. So for some people who have, you know, so much anxiety that they need the structure, you know, depending on what they're coming in with or how destabilized their outer life is or their choices or how they're self-medicating or numbing or all of that, 
you know, it could be kind of a CBT, DBT yeah. path. You know, I love narrative therapy. I'm not necessarily formally trained in it, but yeah, I have gotten yeah. a lot, I've gone to a lot of courses and trainings on it, but I love the idea of telling your story in yeah. such a way that you actually don't know what's coming out yeah. and somebody is there to catch the nuggets and repeat them back to you. And so you get to learn about yourself just through telling your own story. Uh, I do love it so much. You know, I'm really a lot like many people into the mindfulness based you know, work. I also do love somatic work. I'm really, you can't do trauma and grief work without bringing the body in even for myself and my own loss of my mother a few years ago forget, you know, being a grief therapist and a trauma therapist and totally forgetting to bring my own body into my healing and into the work I was trying to do for myself to heal. It's so easy to forget that and really live from the neck up. So, you know, so a lot of that, you know, I really believe in a lot of like interactive journaling type of things. I I like the idea, not I like it, I need <laughs> to have people get it out of their bodies and to see, you know, to be very, very aware of where, where in their body grief and trauma is living. I work with a lot of younger people. So the language... I have to be very careful with the way I present things. Yeah. So it is a different, it's a different way of, you know, nobody asks me about modalities because they're kind of like, I feel bad. What do I do? Somebody have insulted me or on social media, like I'm trying to go on a date. How do I talk about the fact yeah. that my mom is dead? You know, and it's like, it's stuff like that where it's really yeah. in the moment stuff and you're doing the grief work, but it's very sneaky you know, and you're kind of doing Yeah, it. You don't even need to tell them you're doing grief work, do you? You're just working. You're just, you know, you're helping them. And I remember that from my own therapeutic process being like, I know my therapist is asking me this for a reason, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. And then, you know, sort of then walking and being like, oh, this is, she's trying to point this out to me, or this is, oh, she's led me down this path of how I have done these things before. I think when you're working with younger folks, there's more opportunity to just kind of go with the flow, maybe? There is, you know, and I think sometimes, you know, obviously talking about implicit and explicit memories, you know, things that they're like, oh, this is familiar. Oh, this reminded me of like when so-and-so broke up with me or whatever, you know, and really sort of helping them understand where something is born, (laughs) you know, if it feels worse, you know, and that to me is honestly probably as deep as I can go with some people, yeah. you know, and that yeah. really pays homage to the fact that we as social workers really have to be where the client is at and everyone's in a different place. I mean, they tell us that in school all the time, like, you know, meet your client where they're at. That's an over and over and over again statement. But I think you just added something important, which is like, you can't really have expectations on healing either. Right. So like I worked in the emergency room at children's hospital here in DC, I saw clients for three hours. I didn't have high expectations other than they were going to be like literally safe when I stopped working with them and safe might've been in a hospital safe might've been, you know, with the police, like it could it, it, safe might've been going back home with their parents, but And then I worked in a high school and in the high school, most of the children who were there had diagnoses on their IEPs about what made things hard for learning. Also, you know, their ACEs scores were high. The way in which they were setting out in the world was harder than anything I I would ever want them to have. But our job was to help them graduate from high school, not solve the problems of their family systems. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to also just remember that whether you're working with grief, trauma, or anything else, 
that our job is to not cure people or solve all their problems. And I think this is really important in, in you and I started to talk about this off mic in the way in which people get like shamed for still grieving, right? Like, well, you know, still grieving, you're not doing this correctly. I've had some of this recently where people are like, you know, why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z? And I was like, I don't know if you're like, I know my mom died three years ago almost, but it doesn't feel like that to me. It still feels like I'm trying to figure out whether it's snowing or, or raining outside. You know, I don't expect it to be neutral weather. And so even people who know me and are in the field and care about me can still look at it and be like, shouldn't it be different than it is? And I think when we're looking at that, being able to say to clients there, you don't have to go rushing into therapy. There's wisdom in when you come in and the work that needs to be done. And I find that really hopeful and important to say to folks who come in and say, Hope Edelman said this to me too. Like, you know, my clients come in and they're like, I never really grieved my mom. And she's like, it's never true when people say it's never true. Like you may not have the level of resolution. You may have a different expectation. You may have thought grief was going to look and feel a different way but we are doing our grief work, right? Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because people don't really understand that grief will come whether we want it to or not, whether we're conscious of it or not. It is an involuntary response to a loss. And it maybe it won't come up in a way that you consciously categorize as grieving, but it will come up as symptoms in your body or, you know, intrusive thoughts or whatever it comes up as it will come up. And I think exactly what you're saying is so right. And from a trauma perspective, what I often say to clients, like I'm thinking about, I don't know if you know the author, Dara Kurt, she's the loveliest woman. And she wrote a book called my mother's daughter about her mother died when she had, I think her daughter had just been born. She has two daughters, I think who are now in their twenties. And she was like a new mom with a baby. And so she did not spend a lot of time, you know, I think she would describe it as like, she just pushed her mother's death to the side. And then, I don't know, her kid was 12 or something. She found a bag of letters from her mother in a closet and grandmother, all these like words of wisdom that these women had been writing intentionally for her. I know it's a really beautiful book. She's lovely. And the, when we talked, she was like, I have come to understand that this is my grief story, that I didn't do anything wrong by attending to the baby that needed me in front, you know, and I think about that a lot. Like, Grieving is sort of perfect. However you do it, even if it means, and I had a, you know, I had a guy on the podcast a long time ago who was an alcoholic for 10 years after his son died. Like, do we want less terrible symptoms? Do we want to make less terror, you know, our lives less terrible because that's sort of what the definition of trauma is 100%, but it doesn't always work that way. And sometimes pushing it to the side, not addressing it is really actually, there's wisdom in it. It's, it's to keep you moving forward and alive. And then dun, 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 when you can, when you can, or you need to, or the symptoms are like, hello, then we address it. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was talking about with the Holocaust survivors, right? You go through something that is earth shattering in your life. The loss is incomprehensible, The the, you know, the way that you have to reorient yourself to even being alive is totally different. Where do we have time to talk about feelings? It, I mean, it could be really a luxury. And, you know, I am in total agreement. Sometimes self-medicating is self-love. 
depending on the moment, you know, and I think people are very quick to stigmatize and label and point their fingers at people who are doing the best they can to process and integrate something that is unprocessable. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is the deepest of all human wounds and we're putting, you know, we're tapping our watch Yeah. and saying, Hey, is, is it over yet? Hey, did you do it neatly? Can you tie it up in a box and get, you know, back to work in the next week or so? And, and don't get me started on bereavement leave in general for people who even have access for it. You know, it's why is grieving such a luxury in the Western world and yet something that we were constantly judging, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a very strange, it's, it's a it's, strange world. Well, it's, we're a bunch of, we're a bunch of paradox, aren't we? Because, you know, I think part of the reason I do this podcast and write and talk and things like that is that I really believe that that the world with all of the loss that it's experienced, we have an opportunity to, to sort of change maybe how, how this is looked at. And I work with companies that are like, what, so what does this have to do with grief? Which I'm just, I'm so grateful that they're even asking the question, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think, I think we are in this weird crux that feels like people want to be the kind of people who make room for grief and loss, but their actual ability to make room for grief and loss is, hasn't met their desire. Right. And most people are still using their own experience with grief and loss to show up in the world for other people, which is not bad. It's not terrible, but you know, if you think about it, start, it's just, you know, well, I find that some clinicians are like, well, the only people who can really do the work well are grievers, you know, people who have grieved before. And listen, in my experience, some of the worst people to show up in grief and loss are grievers. <laughs> they are the, you know, they're the ones who are going to come in and they want to talk to you about their debt. I mean, I think I've done this, but I think when you haven't been able to create a narrative that works for you, figure out the significance of the loss in your life, do a little bit of work, take pause, take time, just because you've been through something doesn't mean you're a good guide. It it might mean I can get you as lost as I got, you know, I'll sit next to you while like, while you get as lost as I got instead of, and, and there are so many truly grief informed folks who are able to say, I get why you feel that way. That makes sense. Of course you want that you're trending towards that behavior. Can I give you a little bit of feedback about why that might make things worse? You know, some of the stuff we do in the early days is just really stress, like eat and sleep and move, eat and sleep and move. And, and I will be like, and let me tell you why, let me give you the biology of why. So that when you don't think it's important, just eat, sleep, move eat, sleep, move. If you don't move, you could get sort of traumatized. So I want to ask you, because I imagine you have the experience that I have, which is that your phone's been ringing off the hook, that people are calling, that your friends email you, you know, yeah, what's been really hard for me in the past two years is the people I love who are like, can you help? And I can't help because the resources that I normally would guide them towards are also tapped out. So what are you doing with that? What are you, how are you showing up as a human? You know, you mentioned a moment ago that your mom died a few years ago, and I'm really, really sorry to hear that. What was your, what was your mom's name? Thanks. Rose. (laughs) Yeah, what a beautiful name. Rose Mafa. Yes. (sighs) So I was just going to say, you know, speaking about, you know, showing up as a griever, 
doing, you know, I was a grief therapist who lost my mother and got grief wrong. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, not knowing how to really deal with my, my body, I, I got chronic illness and so much came up for me. And so the last thing I want to do is have people show up and do things the way I did it. That's right. <laughs> well, so. I, I lean really heavy on the academics and sort of the teaching and the learning of things and the going through the things. Yes. And I mean, I don't think I will ever recover from the fact that I was so sure that I was going to be inoculated against traumatic loss because I had done so much work, worked with hundreds of clients on this exact topic and then ended up in an inpatient facility because I could not. I could not stop the tide of my symptoms. And, and to some degree, I also have a lot of respect for that where I'm like, yeah, no, our emotional experience does not check and see if it's okay with us. It actually just does what it needs to do. And then we have to be a part of it. But I, but I appreciate Mm -hmm. that. How do you share that with your clients? Do you use your own experience? How does, how does your own experience of loss connect or do you keep it more to the, to the back and, you know, with you? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, we're so trained to be cognizant of our boundaries at all times. Right. So because I work with younger people and they're, and they're so, you know, the millennial Gen Z, my, my Gen Z population, I love them. They're so, they, they're so inquisitive, right. They want to know more about me and I'm like, not here for me, but (laughs) you know, but I do think that there's some there's some part of that that creates such a, such a bridge between the two people and such a sense of safety. So yeah, you know, if somebody says, well, have you lost anyone? I'll I'll share that I have lost my mother. I don't go into the story of it. I don't go into the way that it's affected me. I do in my book, that'll be out next year. I do. I start a little bit with it. Something happened, you know, I call it the grief fall, you know, that moment it's like the portal of loss, you know, that leads you to grief where you have this free fall and you have no idea where you're going to land. And that is, you know, and it has all of these symptoms and these intrusive moments where you're like, I don't, I'm in some foreign landscape, nothing clinical is going to (laughs) help. Nothing scientific is going to help, but you know, what will is a, is a strong hand from someone, whether it's a community, whatever it may be. But, you know, so I think it's interesting. And I think it's, it depends on the person I'm working with. Some people could care less about me and my personal yeah, life. And get annoyed if I even say like, oh, <laughs> I you know, drop my kid off. Like, yeah. Yeah. They don't care. Right. So, and, and you read that. So everybody is different. And I think for me, it's what is going to create a container of safety and mm-hmm. what's going to get us from point A to point B in terms of just the relationship, because look, let's be real. We could have every modality in the book, but if we're not safe people, and we're not trustworthy people, or they just don't get a good vibe from us, nothing's going to work and nothing is going to actually be a comfort or source of support for them. So I think it's really important to always be really, really present, radically so, and reading all of it at the same time, whether it's the body language, right? So if I say something like, oh yeah, my something, something of my life, and they get quiet and then say, yeah, and go back to their life, then you know, now like noted, <laughs> noted. Like, exactly. It's a constant process, isn't it? And sort of, you know, again, I think one of the things maybe that people don't know is like, you go to social work school, basically you pay all that money and you take those very, I'm going to call them superficial classes in order to get the ticket 
to the other ride where you're then going to pay for all the training and take all the intensives yes. so that you can really learn how to do the treatments, right? Like there's some confusion, I think, around what people saw on the Sopranos of like, this is what a therapist looks like and what it means to go into a trauma-centered therapy session, which is really about symptom reduction and getting treatments, right? So we use EMDR and we use sensory motor psychotherapy. And even for me, like I started out just sort of sit on the couch and tell me your problems. And because it was needed in the room, I was like, I got to learn in these other trainings. And it was mind bending to go and take sensory motor psychotherapy and be like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? Like make a physical boundary with my body. What are you talking about? Having a physical resolution in my system. Now it's hard for me to imagine how anyone can do any work ever without having those tools. But what I'm really aware of when I was a little bit of baby therapist and I still help little bit of baby therapists. So you know, <laughs> I'm not disparaging them. It's really important to have people with, you know, all that learning out into the world, Sure. but they're then trying to learn how to be, who to be. It's really important to give them the permission to hold the boundaries really tight so that they're not dysregulated in their work right? Like, so that they can show up and feel like this is safe space for me because it's not going to pull from me. I didn't train in trauma therapy probably until I'd been in the work for about a decade. I don't know that I could have trained it any earlier because it feels to me like partner yoga. Like I am using my body as much as they are using their body. The entire, in IFS work, like the entire time, my energy, and that's part of how I translate the work too, is that I feel these hot and cold things inside my body. And I'm like, oh, the cold is true. The hot is something else. And what I've, what I've discovered, you know, doing most of it on zoom these days and having people in such high states of dysregulation is that I am not an unlimited resource. You know, therapy is not like going grocery shopping, <laughs> you know, where you like pick yeah. it up and then you're like, it's, it really is more like a dance number. And I have been, I have, and I wanted to ask you about this. Like, how has your energy been in the work for the past couple of years? You're writing a book, you're seeing these patients, you're back in the office. Like, how are you doing with the work? I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. And just you saying, I realize I'm not an unlimited resource is exactly it, right? It's, it's really hard. You know, during the pandemic, I was just saying yes. And I was taking people on and I was taking on volunteer people and I was volunteering with ER docs. And there were so many people that just had so much need. We were in this unprecedented place in the world. And I thought, all right, as long as I'm still standing, I'm going to help whomever I can help. And I'll fill myself with these delicious chocolate chip cookies that I bake every week. And, you know, and not really thinking of even getting my own therapy or getting my own, you know, how am I actually filling up? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm doing yoga. I'm taking walks. I'm doing Pilates. I'm, I'm talking to friends and family and I'm whatever, but even those things, people, friend, like you said earlier, friends and family still relying on you and you are expected to show up as a professional you in yeah. all areas of your life, all of a sudden. And, you know, I think as, as it is now, you know, my practice is still full with a waiting list. I am, you know, writing a book that had a very short manuscript deadline yeah. and, and I'm, I am really tired, but what I 
am trying to do is also take time away. And yeah. I'm planning a trip to Italy in two weeks. Oh and my I'm, God. You know, <laughs> I am going to be on Lake Como just relaxing. <gasps> and I, at first, George for me. Oh, amazing. Oh yeah. I, you know, we'll be, I'll be at his house daily. But, uh, no. <laughs> for those of you who are not aware. Yes. Yes. But uh, yeah. So, I mean, but, and at first I was like, well, I've got to take my computer. I've got to finish chapter 13 and do this whole thing. But I'm like, I think if I go away for this, you know, for this week or 10 days, whatever it is, I I'm going to come back and I'll have more to give. And it's something that we know theoretically, right? Like pour mm-hmm. from your own, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup and fill yourself first and put your oxygen mask. But we ran out of oxygen a long time ago. <laughs> you know, we did. And I think, you know, it, it, it's like everything else. It's like, it's like the concept of what grief is. You know, I think, well, let me say it like this. Like you have a different vision of yourself and what you're able to do after you come out of an inpatient hospitalization, right? So like my whole facade, maybe, maybe facade to me, maybe I didn't understand of like, I can do this. I like doing it. It doesn't cost me that much. And that all happened before COVID. I literally was like to my husband, here are the keys to our life. You hold them now and opted out for three weeks and came back into a life that is not balanced the same. We do not run our show the same. A lot of the things that I used to do because they made sense for me to do because my husband traveled a lot. He doesn't travel anymore. He'll start to travel again, but you know, he does the laundry and the soccer pickup. And, and I used to do a lot of that stuff, not the laundry. I never did the laundry, but I don't know how to use our, I don't know how to use our washer. Um, I love laundry. Things that came the house, so. Right. Well, and again, like some people will tell me that doing the laundry is their, is their therapy. It's like their Pilates class. But I think one of the things that we sometimes do too, is we're like, well, if you do enough self-care, then you won't get overwhelmed. And particularly for trauma patients, for people who are working within like, you know, they have a historical map inside their body that they don't get to control the same way. One of the things that makes me crazy is people are like, well, you know, you need to control your emotions. You need to regulate your emotions. Like, nobody regulates their emotions. Duh, duh, duh. We don't do that. We regulate our body's responses to our emotions, but nobody yeah. regulates their emotions. Emotions are just these little intrinsic electrical currents that come through your body. And for trauma, people with trauma, they come in like a lightning strike. And so then they got to spend the, you know, the next several weeks. And when I was writing my memoir, that was one thing that I was discussing with my, my publishing house was like, listen, guys, I know we have deadlines, but I also have to be careful about how much going back into the story, my body does at a certain time. And that's the thing that I am. That's the thing when I'm talking to people at my supervision group and other therapists, I'm like, (laughs) how's your body doing? How are you like, is Pilates doing it? Are, Are the long walks, are you getting the energy out so that you have an empty cup that you can fill up with other people's and fill up with your own stuff so that you feel like a warm cup of tea or... And I am really, I'm finding that to be really tricky, particularly because the subject matter, you know, session after session after session is pretty much the same and is subject matter that also impacts me. So if you, if you come in to talk to me about your, you know, your partner, your daughter or whatever, I don't know your partner. I don't know your daughter. It's simple for me to just hold space. But if you come in to me to come in to talk to me about politics that are going to impact me and my children, and I like the way you're talking about it. So it pulls me in or I hate the way you're talking about it. So it pushes me out. I'm, I'm all over the place in there. So yeah. I have found 
therapy to feel much more full contact, like a wrestling match with myself and my own body. And I have, and I'm really trying to figure out the right balance with doing that's that and other things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the delicate tango right there. Yeah, it is. And it's, and it's ever changing because I think your needs are going to change from day to day. Our needs and energy is changing. So it will be changing day to day. And how do you contend with something that you're, you're like Muhammad Ali, you know, a moving target, but it is hard. Just regulate your emotions, Megan. Come on. Yeah, just regulate your emotions. <laughs> I mean, God, you know, if like I could just beg the world to stop saying anything about the five stages of grief and beg the world to stop saying regulate your emotions. Like Mark Rocket at Yale has done this beautiful work about teaching us the difference between emotions and feelings. And I'm like, just take that into a second grade classroom. It's not hard. But if you don't teach people that emotions are little electrical currents, feelings are your interpretations of those electrical currents that involves thinking. One is unconscious, one is conscious. People get really messed up about what is okay to have. You know, I, I, those are just, I felt afraid. It doesn't matter if you think I shouldn't, I did. (laughs) It doesn't matter. You're feeling And I feel like at the root of a lot of conflict for people is the inability to understand that I'm communicating something to you that I am going through that is happening to me because it's hard. I'm not accusing you of causing it. I don't think it's your problem. I'm just trying to tell you I'm over here on the street corner having this experience. Yeah. And this is the truth. (laughs) Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your book, why you wrote it, what it's about, what, what, when it's coming out, what's the, I want to hear all about it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for asking. It's my baby, you know, like yours, you know, I can't wait to like, yeah. I mean, my big, my, I, now that I am, have done some writing, I feel like everyone I know that has ever written a book, I need to apologize to them for not giving them a car and, you know, especially a car. This is the hardest thing I've ever done. And also it will never, you know, it's stupid work, right? Like I could never get paid the amount of money for the effort that I, but I will never stop because it's so important to me. Totally, totally. Well, you know, it's so interesting because writing a book wasn't, at least this kind of book wasn't on my, like on my radar whatsoever, but because like I was saying, I was working, I am working with younger people. And, you know, a lot of them are really voracious readers or just, you know, professionals that really love learning. It just so happens that those are my people, at least lately. And so during COVID, you know, they were coming to me like losing people for the first time, some of them multiple immediate family members. So the shock of that and, you know, therapy wasn't enough. Once a week, twice a week, I was seeing some people three times a week, depending on what was happening. And they would say, Gina, like, do you have a book that I can relate to? And I'm giving them all of these books that I, I think could help right. nothing. And, you know, one of my clients is like, Gina, I mean, like when you talk, it makes sense to me. Can you just write the book? And I, you know, and I laughed it off. And then I was like, huh, you know, like maybe there's something here for people who are yeah. grieving for the first time, who are young, who really want something to meet them where they're at. And additionally, for people that I had to turn away at one point and say, I'm really sorry. I, either you're out of state because I'm not licensed in your state. And I don't know anyone who does grief therapy in your state, you know, so you don't have access, whether it's finances, healthcare, you know, or whatever. So to me, I was like, how do I do something that gives access to people who wouldn't have grief therapy or grief informed therapy? So part of the book is, so I decided, let me write a proposal and see where it goes. 
somehow by the grace of God, <laughs> I wound up getting literary agents who then shopped it and wound up at a really great, great publisher, which I guess at some point will be announced. I'm one of the top five, which I'm incredibly humbled by and shocked still about. And so they gave me, you know, I got the deal in March, mid-March, and they were like, can you give us the manuscript by end of August? And I was like, oh, okay, guess, guess my 12 hour therapy days don't Ooh. really matter. Yeah. And so really the book is a little bit about kind of how the grief therapist got grief wrong, you know, and also, you know, a lot of stuff my clients are going through dealing with things like dating and social media. When you want to be alone, when you don't know, know if you want to be alone when you're too alone, you know, how do we sort of juggle that? You know, there's so much that people don't know that they're allowed to do, right? Yeah. So I think people are looking for so much permission to feel how they feel and to take care of themselves or to bring boundaries to keep themselves safe and a lot of the younger people. So this is really geared towards helping people along the way. And if you have never done grief-informed therapy and you have no access to it where you live, my hope is that this is as close as you can get, you know? And I love that. I love, I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to promote it. I can't wait to have like a book party for it. I, and you are. Uh, <laughs> and I, what I, what I'm thinking about when you're talking, particularly that question of how do I date after grief that comes up a lot. Brooke James of the grief coach. She and I did a couple of crossover episodes on that because she herself was dating after the loss of her dad. What it, what it reminds me, you know, there, there are I think there are a lot of people writing grief books. There are some really good grief books out there. And I want a hundred thousand people to write more because yeah. no one would ever be like, well, you know, there've been a lot of thriller books written. Like what, if you have a new idea that would scare the pants off someone, write the book. Yes. You, I think what's important about write, writing, and you also have a big social media platform, being able to help have those people who are in these really alone, isolated places, be able to say to them, we, I'm going to co-create this with you. I'm going to give you some ideas, right? Like I have this laminated thing in my office, which is basically like, here are all the things that people have said to me that they do in grief and loss. Do any of them resonate with you? Because most of the time when people are coming in, especially in early grief, they don't have a lot of their creativity or their imagination online. Their brain is really still traumatized. And so they're like, I have no idea what would help me. Or I have no idea what I could eat or I have no idea how to get to sleep. And it's like, no, I yeah. totally believe you. I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to tell you you're doing anything wrong. Just how about you and I together try something, pick something to try because there is no right, right way to do any of the things that you've just described, but you yeah. have the, the hope, right. That they're going to figure it out. And, and so let's just get creative, right? Like when people come into our offices and they're like, you're the expert in grief and loss. First of all, any griever is an expert in grief and loss. Hello. Yeah, no and one's going to know it better than you. <laughs> and no one knows your grief better, right? No well, one knows yeah, your body, exactly. no one knows your system. No one knows what you lost, but you doesn't matter. I have five brothers and sisters. They did not lose what I lost. You know, they lost the same person, but they didn't lose the relationship that I had with either of my parents when they died. But also what we really need is someone to believe it's going to be okay with us because we have no reason to believe it's going to be okay. We've never done anything like this before. It's totally new to us. And so someone saying, just lean on my belief and try some things. How about you? Trust me, lean on my belief and try some things. And if it turns out yeah. that you have trauma 
down the line that there's old creaky stuff inside your system that we really like splinters that we need to like extract. No problem. We'll do that then. But right now we're just trying to integrate. We're trying to get your system so that you can go on a date and not end up crying in the bathroom. Yeah. And if you do end up crying in the bathroom, know that that's maybe how early dating is going to go. And right? it's more than, more than it, it might. might. <laughs> it really might more yeah. than we know, you know, yeah. but I, it's so true because the people that come to me, they have this visual that they have to bring their suitcase to the date and empty it all out and give all of this information up front and t- sh- like bear it all and be as vulnerable yeah. as possible. And it's like, who, where did you learn this? <laughs> in a place, well, you know, in a country where we, we sh- shame vulnerability sometimes, you know, maybe not as much thanks to Brene Brown, but, you know, <laughs> but we do, you know, in, in communities and whatever. And so it's funny that we, like you said before, just all the paradoxes around grief, vulnerability, strength, all of this fine, stuff. I have to say to people, like, you're not feeling, failing because it feels bad. Yeah. Not like fucking it up because you can't get out of bed. That's just the way this is. And, you know, I use a lot of the parts work that I've talked about this on this podcast before IFS with Dick Schwartz and parts is so beautiful because you know, the, the it's right in the front of the book, like all parts are welcome. You just got to notice who's with you. And a lot of us have these critical external voices that become these internal voices that we're supposed to be doing it differently. Some of that comes from culture. Some of it is our own. And, and when you're able to sort of get up underneath it and say like, yeah, but if you weren't criticizing yourself, you would just have to be compassionate. This is what's happening. You know, this was a friend, you'd be compassionate, right? Yeah. So I love the idea that you're writing this book and the population that you're writing it for and because they deserve a lot of compassion. Can you imagine trying to navigate all of those young adult things? I wouldn't go back to my 20s for love or money. I'm with you. I lived on Capitol Hill. It's amazing to be young. You can have the keys to the government. You, you know, you can dance on tables, like go enjoy yourself. That is how I came up in the world. Not locked down, hope you can figure out how to like meet somebody in a yard. And I think a lot about Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory, which is really our first instinct. Our first instinct is to reach out to people when we need help reach out to yeah. people and these young people that would normally have had a bad day, called a friend who called a friend, ended up sitting with a bunch of people having a drink or too many drinks with a bunch of 20 year olds, all of whom were like, yep, I hear you. Me too. Uh-huh. And, you know, and let's go to the zoo this weekend or whatever less appropriate things 20 year olds do. They, they haven't been able to do any of that stuff. I know. I know. It's just, it's isolation. Yeah. And it's one thing after another, and it's all of these secondary losses too, you know, that they don't even understand, but they can feel and they have the felt experience of, but they don't know what to do with. And for, for people in trauma, when they do not feel okay, they believe they are not okay. Yeah. And that's not always the truth. And sometimes when you're able to be around other people, you can feel the dissonance of like, oh, well, they also only have $200 in their bank account, but they seem fine. And so I'm able to kind of regulate my body with the comparison some of the time, 
you know, what happens now with social media is you don't get that. That's what you see is like new designer jeans and the party that the person went to. You don't get a lot of the backstory of all the hard and the heavy to relate to. So again, it's like isolation after isolation after isolation. It's so true. And they need reference points. You know, I mean, young people need reference points. They are like, they, they love doing things in crowds and groups and they want to belong. And when they're grieving and when they're traumatized, it's like, okay, where's my reference point? Where do I belong? I belong nowhere. And I'm going to sink deeper and deeper and deeper down. And that's the hardest part. Before COVID. So I've, I work with a bunch of like, it's usually young women who are coming to college for their first year here down in DC. And often the story that they've been told about what college is going to be like is really kind of like reflective of senior year in college, not freshman year in college, freshman year in college. Everybody's like, you're hanging with your roommate, even though you don't like them because you don't want to go to the dining hall alone kind of thing. And that's not the story that parents are telling their young adults. They're like, oh, you're going to love it. It's going to be amazing. And like, they do love it and it becomes amazing, but over time. And I remember having a session with someone who was really wanting me to know how painful social media was for her. Mm. And my social media is reflective of at that time, a woman in her like early forties, which was people being really funny about how they were failing at shit. Like, Oh, I get a daycare. Like I forgot to pick my kid up a daycare. I think I actually think that was the, my social media post from a friend was like, Hey, I'm expecting child protective services at any time. I literally forgot to pick my son up a daycare. And That's the commodity. I think at some point in your life with a certain group of women is sort of like telling the truth, right? And with younger women, they're not there yet. And so she was showing me her social media. And at first she was like, this is what causes me pain. And I was like, that would cause anyone pain. I think your friends are assholes is what I said to her. She was like, no, she's not. They're not assholes. This is what it's like. And I was like, oh boy, that's hard. And I was like, let's look at my social media. Let's see what mine has. And of course my friend was like, oh, I left my kid at daycare. And I was like, so just so you know, keep going because I think you're going to get here and like maybe be the person that helps us get here. But when we're talking about grief and loss, some of the patients who I love, I just love them so deeply and I admire them so much are the people who had lost in their twenties when their friends are running around putting parties on Instagram and, you know, pretty pictures in Sardinia, they're trying to figure this out in, in almost like an early developmental stage experience. So I'm really excited that your book is geared towards this population because I think they are really, really lucky to have you. And I think you probably have found a a space in and amongst all those grief and loss books where there's a unique thing to say, which I think is really, really amazing and important. Thank you. You know, it's sometimes while I'm writing it, I'm like, wow, I'm really I feel I'm not using my brain here or like, you know, one of the chapter titles is like no, you're not failing at grief, just like you were saying, you know, and sort of going through that. And it feels so simplifying, right? But when I actually am in the work every day in the trenches, this is what we talk about. And these are the things that you have, you have to talk about platitude traps and like, you know, how do we reframe things when people come at us in a way that doesn't sever the connection? You know, these are almost daily life skills, but looking at them through a lens of now I've lost and I am reorienting myself to a, a world that I did not choose to 
reorient myself to. And I have to now sort of weigh what relationships matter because now friends who didn't show up to my mom's funeral, I am not, you know, like this stuff matters and different priorities for different age groups, you know, and and that's normalizing something that is really needs to be normalized. I think you know, for that group of people, like that it is all the pain that's associated. What I heard you say, although you didn't say it directly is also like working on that now informs the way you live the rest of your life. It's not like, oh, well, I, you know, I wanted to learn to bake a banana bread. So now I bake banana bread, like baking banana bread also informs maybe how you would bake like lemon poppy seed muffins. Like you have an idea of, oh, that's what flowers like when you're doing this grief and loss work, when you're having to as every one of us has show up to a relationship and say, I know you mean well, when you are saying at least your mom was 80 when she died, it's like, you're stabbing me with a white hot needle in my eyeball. I need you to stop. That is being able to, sh- to show someone, this is who I, I know. I know what you mean, which is good. I'm telling you how it feels, which is bad. Can we co-create something that works better for both of us? that would be good. That, whether you're doing that around grief and loss or you're doing that around like your coworker always talking over you in a meeting, it's a really good skill to have, right? So it's- 100%, yeah. No, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, the hope is that you take this forward with you and it does dictate how you are in relationship and how you are in terms of like being embodied in general. How do we, how do we re-embody ourselves to something that almost disembodies us? I know I need to let you go. I love landing on this, which is actually that grief and loss is full of hope, but that is actually, I think the deepest truth is that when we are talking about grief and loss and we are talking about coaching people and guiding people, really what we're doing is saying there is hope on the other side that the bad thing won't always just feel bad. And that when we're writing books, that's what we're offering and that, you know, that it's not to instruct you how to do this so that you have no pain. There will be pain that our job is not, our job as humans is not necessarily even to mitigate the pain. It's to keep it within the window of tolerance that we can keep living forward. But it's, you know, grief yeah. sucks. It's going to be hard, but being able to say, my hope is that it's not only going to make my life less than is... I think actually kind of a beautiful thing. This has been a delight of a conversation. I am so grateful it's not ready. So we'll get there when we get there. Thank you so much for this time on Monday. And I will, I'll talk to you soon. For sure. And thanks for all you do. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.